taking that. I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 130. I am your host, Matthew, pmbiglow.com. And that is where you can go to get all the show notes for this podcast that focuses on AI trends from Japan, rising conflict in the Asia Pacific, depopulation, odd items, and more. Welcome, everybody. To the Tomihisacho Studios, the armpit of Asia. And I am Matthew PMBigelow.com. All right, so this will be the podcast for the second one this week that we're continuing to aim to do here. And we're going to begin right away here. We're, we're very busy. There's only so much time I have booked in, this, in the armpit of Asia, and there's a lot of stuff we got to get through. So let's just... Um, cast the formalities aside and dive right in, shall we? Uh, I like to focus on odd items. Oftentimes at the beginning of the podcast, we get into the nitty and the gritty and sometimes the odd items that everybody loves from Japan are kind of an economic indicator of how things are going over here. And if that's the indicator, it's always set to crazy, I guess. Lipton releases pancake tea latte in Japan. Uh, Lipton, you know, the tea company? Of course. Pancake tea. Latte. Uh, this comes to us from Sora News 24, written by Onamigi. Morinaga might be the most famous for its sweets and ice cream, but it's also the go-to brand for hotcake mix, which has been selling like, well, hotcakes since it was first introduced to the Japanese market in 1957. Now, for a limited time, Morinaga is putting a new twist in the mix by teaming up with Lipton, the world's top tea brand, to create the Lipton Pancake Tea Latte. Oh, where'd it go? Here it is. The new product blends Lipton's aromatic black tea with the sweetness of maple syrup and aromatic butter. Are you really using aromatic twice in the same sentence? To recreate the taste and aroma of Morinaga's fluffy hotcakes. And in case you're wondering the difference between hotcakes and pancakes, despite the words often, uh, words often being used interchangeably, is that hotcakes are thicker and more dense, whereas pancakes are wider and thinner. The word, uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll be posting this, but according to Matt Morinaga, the new refrigerated product lets you enjoy, quote, the mysterious experience of drinking Morinaga hotcakes, end quote. And it's an experience we can't wait to try when it's released at convenience stores and mass retailers nationwide for limited time from uh, February 6th, priced at 170 yen. So if you want, you can go to MatthewPMBigelow.com, get yourself some photos of the Lipton hot cake uh, tea latte, the kocha latte. And see for yourself if you would like some. I, uh, would I try it? No, I wouldn't. I don't want to drink pancakes. I'm not the pancake drinker type. But maybe you are. You likely are. And so, congratulations. This is for you. We're going to take a look right now. Um, we're going to dive right into <clears throat> some of the topics that we cover here are uh, based on war, technology, um, migration, uh, and, and population. It's it's where wherever like the the data leads me is are, are these trails that I like to follow. 
I don't want to be the one type of dude who's like, I only cover X and this is the X podcast. You know, I don't do that. So I like to keep it fresh. I like to keep it open. Let's take a look at today's war news. News from the war. Did you know that you've been in a war for like four years? Die for the war. Everybody moves. Die for the good. For the good. Die for the war. Die for the war. And I'm titling uh, today's war segment, Supply Chain China War, Weaponizing Biotech, How China's Military is Preparing for a New Domain of Warfare. Now, one thing that I uh, that often gets my goat, well, this comes to us from DefenseOne.com. Um, one thing that often grabs my gonads is, the everyone's like, you know, Sun Tzu once said, build the bridge for your enemy to escape on. And that's the China we are dealing with it. No, no, no. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not really sure. But uh, what I like to begin with is the early 90s, two colonels from the People's Liberation Army of, uh, of China saying, in effect, that if they want to defeat America, which I guess is like some plan they have, I should say, I should speak more maturely about the topic, like uh, not using the word like, for example. The Chinese government right now is aiming for a new type of global hegemony. And to achieve that hegemony, they often see America and the American model as in the way and in contrast to their own model based on communism with Chinese characteristics or whatever, however you want to say it. And one of their ways of conducting warfare since the early nineties has been instead of bullets using unrestricted warfare, which, which means using it by any means necessary, you uh, elite capture, you establish culture zones, um, you destabilize. And if essentially the, the, the thousand pinprick idea uh, will bleed the enemy out. Um, and you don't have to fire a single shot, something along those lines. And um, <clears throat> I, what do you guys, like if you're listening to this and I say to you, COVID-19 was probably a bioweapon released from Wuhan, but it probably wasn't only solely developed by the scientists at Wuhan Institute of Virology. They likely had some help from the Americans and we're in this a new uh, era where you have very capable people in very segregated communities that often interact only with each other scheming against the rest of us. Like scheming against the rest of us is where I myself get a little cloudy because <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but ever since COVID was released and the Chinese government shut down Wuhan, uh, which is a global hub of um, the transportation network, cybersecurity, cars, chips, manufacturing. Like everybody had an office in Wuhan and they shut it down and we're still living with the consequences of those supply chain shutdowns. But at the same time, the Chinese government has their one belt, one road policy. They want to establish a type of new you know, maritime, uh, rail, road network where everything leads back to Beijing and uh, they can establish a new 
international trade network based on their own interests and not have to rely on the American or the G7 interests, right? So is that just a coincidence? I'm Unrestricted warfare would say that's exactly what they would do. That's exactly the type of tactic you would take in order to achieve such bold aims. You can't make an omelet without cracking some eggs or breaking some eggs, whatever. This article, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a little bit old, actually, from DefenseOne.com. I just happened to come across it and looking at some of the uh, key slots here, thought it would be relevant for viewing the world today. That's what I like to do with this podcast. It's not about breaking news. It's not about just reacting to whatever's happening and being the first to do so. Uh, it's looking at the past events and applying them to the current events to maybe see what's going on with future events. Am I right? I don't know. Go to MatthewPMBigelow.com to get all of the notes, photos, and more. So this is from August 14th, 2019. Under Beijing's civil-military fusion strategy, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is sponsoring research on gene editing, human performance enhancement, and more. Uh, It says that, we'll just begin here. We may be on the verge of a brave new world indeed. Today's advances in biotechnology and genetic engineering have exciting applications in medicine, yet also alarming implications, including for military affairs. China's national strategy of military civil fusion has highlighted biology as a priority, and the People's Liberation Army could be at the forefront of expanding and exploiting this knowledge. The... PLA's keen interest is reflected in strategic writings and research that argue that advances in biology are contributing to changing the form of character of conflict, for example. And this is kind of goes through the, uh, the Chinese uh, or the CCP, however you want to say it, like uh, a timeline uh, of, of biological war ideas. In 2010's War for Biological Dominance, uh, Guo Jiwei, a professor with the Third Military Medical University, emphasizes the impact of biology on future warfare. In 2015, then-president of the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, He Fuchu, argues that biotechnology will become the new, quote, strategic commanding heights, end quote, of national defense, from biomaterials to, quote, brain control weapons. Major General He has since become the vice president of the Academy of... Oh, we don't know about that now. Uh, Next, biology is among seven new domains of warfare discussed in a 2017 book by uh, Zhang Shibu, a retired general and foreign president of the National Defense University, who concludes, quote, Modern biotechnology development is gradually showing strong signs characteristic of an offensive capability, end quote, including the possibility that, quote, specific ethnic genetic attacks could be employed. If you say that in the Western sphere, you get called a racist conspiracy theorist. But here they are four years ago talking about it openly in China. Okay. There you go. Now, if we just get all past this, everything is racist, people. If we could just get them out of the way, we might be able to discuss things on a rational level, uh, such as what the Chinese people are doing in their um, strategic uh, environments. 
In the 2017 edition of Military uh, Science of Military Strategy, a textbook published by the PLA's National Defense University that is considered to be relatively authoritative, authoritative, sorry, debuted a section about biology as a domain of military struggle, similarly re- mentioning the potential for new kinds of biological warfare to include, quote, specific ethnic genetic attacks. So there it is again. Um I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but this article goes into gene editing. Uh, Over a dozen clinical trials are known to have been undertaken for humans in gene editing, for CRISPR gene editing technology, um, as well as other AI and biotech. The intersection of biotechnology and artificial intelligence promises unique synergies. Um... The genetic information of the strategic value of genetic information led the Chinese government to launch launch the National Gene Bank, which intends to become the world's largest repository of such data. I don't know if you've seen these videos on um, Twitter or from around, but it shows People Liberation Army, quote unquote, scientists going around collecting blood from people and collecting gene data from people. And during COVID, Japanese scientists in China or um, Japanese government workers going to China had to have anal swabs taken. Um, And in China, if you want to improve your social credit score, you donate your blood. So uh, there's a sweeping um, genetic influx uh, for their their data banks going on in China right now and it and it stems from this. So yeah, this article is from 2019, but based on what's going on right now, especially for gene editing technology, well they've been amassing data banks based on this for their, you know, uh, their, for their policies that were introduced 4, 5, 6, 7 years ago. Other things, biotech's expansive frontier and so on and so forth. So I'll be linking this article up onto MatthewPMBigelow.com. I don't want to read the whole thing because like, it's not the newest article, but it, by going back a little bit in time, you can kind of see why we are at the point we are at now. Um, and such is the case with uh, articles like this. It comes to us from DefenseOne.com. I don't really know their policy, but I don't really care at this point. Let's take a look at the next article for war. Uh, Demand for shipments from China via rail through Russia has skyrocketed since the Red Sea attacks. Now, um, one thing that I've long posited for for the past few months is that with China trying to increase its hegemony or uh, how do I say this? Install a hegemony or develop a hegemony in the global supply chain networks to introduce their one belt, one road or belt and road initiative. They don't want to use other currencies. They want it all to be based on the Chinese yuan. So, and this will be backed up with um, Huawei telecommunications networks, servicing people's phones for ordering things, uh, the ships for maintaining their tracking position or even driving the self-driving ships, the balloons in the sky and the satellites and and all of that, maintaining um, an AI uh, presence on these ships. They go into Africa to get the orders, for example, coffee from someone in Beijing, and then they go back via these rails built by the Chinese, uh, bringing the coffee back on their Huawei-based technologies, AI ships, 
into China to deliver coffee to the people that ordered it on their Huawei phones. Um, so in order to establish this, it doesn't mean that China wants its renminbi to float alongside the United States. It means that they want to establish more hegemony or they want to have more market share of the global supply chain network to get people on board their vision for the future. And that would mean dealing with Huawei technologies, dealing with the CCP and dealing with their payment systems, their digital yuan, their, their CBDC and all that. Um, and, uh, by having the G7 supply chain routes attacked because under the guise of, um, supporting, uh, Israel, or uh, having connections to America, the Houthis in Yemen have established basically a naval blockade at this point. We're, you know, early, early February 2024. Um, and this is only being done to blockade one certain type of ship from one certain type of economy. So the other economies will then have their global supply chain networks bolstered by destabilizing the competition within the G7. Uh, so that's what's kind of happening with here. So it's it's not exactly war, but is it? I mean, if the if the end goal is unrestricted warfare to establish new global hegemony via the supply chain networks, this would be indicative of such a process. And you don't ever really sure how it's going to establish itself. You just push in this direction, and the opportunities will open or close because war expands. War expands. Um, in ways you would never imagine. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. I generally think it's mostly bad, but this comes to us from cnbc.com, which I hate. Demand for shipments from China via rail through Russia has skyrocketed since the Red Sea attacks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Shippers are scrambling to find alternative ways to transport goods from China to Europe in light of disruption caused by attacks on the Red Sea. Air cargo volumes on the major apparel route via, between Vietnam and Europe increased by 65% in the week ending January 14th when compared to the week prior, according to data from Zenita, a freight rate data platform. And while it only represents a small proportion of containers moved between Far East and Europe, rail routes via Russia have seen an uptick in interest too. Freight forwarders and consolidators, companies that organize the shipment of goods, have reported a sharp increase in inquiries and bookings for the route. Rail is attractive to shippers as it is cheaper than air freight and quicker than using ocean transportation. Railgate Europe, a group of consolidators, transports goods including furniture, toys, clothes, and automotive parts from China through Russia to European countries. Excuse me. The journey takes between 14 and 25 days, depending on its origin and destination. A transit time that is, quote, significantly better, end quote, than ocean times, according to uh, Julia Skillgate, Railgate's Europe's chief business development officer. Uh, ocean shipping from China to the Dutch port of Rotterdam via the Red Sea, take, Red sea takes about 27 days, but rerouting via South Africa's Cape of Good Hope adds about 10 to 12 days. Last week, German shipping company Hapagloid said it would continue to reroute its vessels until further notice. It goes on for rail through Russia and all the issues there with the sanctions and so on. And uh, oh, here it is. I didn't read this far, but it says China's ambitions. And the first line is China's Belt and Road Initiative aims to increase Beijing's global influence through transport modes. Maybe instead of global hegemony, global influence is what I should be saying. That's not a bad way to say it because hegemony implies it's like it's only one, you know, or the main one or, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
So that's an interesting uh, uh, case where, but by looking for alternative routes, Russia is now a beneficiary. China is a beneficiary, is benefiting from the conflict of the Red Sea. Uh, next, this one comes to us to focus back on China. We have the two aspects of China include China's Belt and Road Initiative, which focuses on China via the west of China. That would mean Central Asia down into um, the Middle East and Africa and Europe. But then there's the Chinese Pacific side, which is another host of issues that are being um, developed which includes the Taiwan issue. Taiwan recently just had an election. They elected a, a, a pro-democracy government, but there's still a lot of CCP sympathizers within Taiwan, and Taiwan and China still do a lot of business with each other. Um, but this is just an interesting idea where uh, Taiwan is severely lacking in its defense capabilities, so they are trying to deploy drone defenses around power plants amid fears of Chinese attack. Drone jamming guns and uh, passive radar detection and response system aim to deter actions against critical infrastructure. Taiwan is planning to buy drone jamming guns to protect its power plants, which it fears could be among the first targets of a Chinese invasion. The guns and a passive radar detection and response system would form a two-tier defense structure to deter sabotage and attacks on critical infrastructure. Taiwan's close observation of Russia's war with Ukraine and the extensive use of drones in the conflict was behind the move to boost the defenses of its electricity grid and nuclear power facilities, officials said. According to the Taipei Times, China, which claims Taiwan as its own territory, has in recent years increased its military intimidation of the island democracy, flying fighter jets on a near daily basis close to its airspace. Uh, Taiwan, a state owned, uh, sorry, Tai Power, a state owned electric power company, has approved an initial 250,000 pound budget for a first batch of 60 drone jamming guns. These are interesting. You just point the drone, the gun, this. It's like a frequency gun, and it interferes with the connection the drone has with its operator, and the drone crashes. Even if it's able to safeguard its power plants in the event of a conflict, energy security remains an Achilles heel for Taiwan. Energy insecure economy. Uh, so Taiwan, you know, has a whole bunch of semiconductor plants. Taiwan Semiconductor Company uh, is a major supplier for the world. If they don't have the power to, uh, you know, fuel these plants, then a lot of the world gets screwed for its chip consumption, which is now more important than ever for the reasons that chips are in everything, but including into the AI economy as well, which is seeing a massive amount of investment. Uh, but it's also, you know, dishwashers, cars, everything needs a chip in it. And a lot of it comes from uh, this one choke point for the Taiwan Semiconductor Company based in Taiwan. As we saw, as we saw in uh, Wuhan after the virus was released, uh, China cut off the world from access to Wuhan or passing through its supply chain networks through via Wuhan. And it created massive amounts of upheaval within the global uh, supply chain networks. Now, if China aims to increase, increase its influence in the sphere of 
um, supply chain networks taking over Taiwan and then uh, canceling all orders for chips until peace and stability are ensured would only make it so that um, the West's supply chains would be further impacted by all of the products that we use that that require these chips that we purchase from Taiwan to be put into everything that we have. So again, it's another aspect of this supply chain war of unrestricted warfare, all of these things. I'm not sure if China's little drone guns are going to, or sorry, I'm sorry, not China, but Taiwan's little drone guns are going to be able to um, offset the the entire attack there. Uh, And this one comes to us from a, a a Japanese perspective. Japan, for some reason, is tying up more and more with European economies. They want to develop fighter jets with Italy. They want to do patrols with Britain. Basically, it's like NATO, soft NATO alliance uh, between Japan and NATO. But NATO is a giant bureaucracy of money suck. And they don't really give back much in terms of anything effective for fighting wars. Uh, look at the past, even with the American led efforts in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, now in Ukraine, uh, and even Israel, the America supplying Israel with funding and all that. It's not NATO, but I mean, if NATO is going to be doing it, it's going to be doing it with America as its leader, of course. Uh, I'm not sure why Japan is so gung ho on establishing tighter and tighter ties with Europe. Uh, Germany is like closing all of its nuclear power plants. They are energy dependent now, not on Russia because of the Nord Stream bombing and the sanctions and all that, but they want to have more LNG coming from America. But America is now saying we don't want to sell as much LNG as before. And with the uh, incursions of uh, Houthi attacks on the Red Sea infrastructure, a lot of LNG from Qatar or Qatar are not going to be coming through as well. So the EU is trying to like diversify its dependence on all into all these places where it can be easily um, on the receiving end of being uh, screwed. The screwed stick. Europe is being beaten by the screwed stick, but Japan is like these seem like solid people, and we need more. Uh, military issues with them. Kyoto News. Uh, Japan and Germany on, uh, concluded a military pact to facilitate exchanges of supplies and logistical support as the two countries aim to strengthen their defense ties in the face of China's growing maritime assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific region. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Germany's fantastic navy that we've all relied on for, you know, global assurances and Germany's military know-how, you know, ended in 1945. This is very silly. Japan's foreign minister, Yoko Kamikawa, and German ambassador to Japan, Clemens von Goetz, signed in Tokyo the acquisition and cross-servicing agreement, uh, which which simplifies the process of sharing food, fuel, and ammunition between the Japanese self-defense forces and the German military. Uh, All right. I, I'm, I, this looks to me like it's a, a, another hand. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we should be uh, sidling up to the European Union for uh, military reasons right now, Japan. But, you know, whatever makes you feel better, or maybe it'll dump a few billion dollars into your economy. I hope you end up fighting the war. Die for the war. Everybody moves. Die for the good. For the good. We're going to do a quick Japan Society 5.0. 
The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, all right, so Japan Society 5.0, launched in 2016-2017, was a kind of an umbrella term for all the next-gen technology that was supposed to come out at that time for the future of our consumer life. Never really happened. Uh, for the most part, we don't really have drone deliveries. We don't really have self-driving cars. All of these things in Japan just have not been developed and are likely not going to see much development into the mainstream they do happen here and there in terms of trials, like an 800-meter-long bus route here or a drone may, maybe doing some testing over here on an old rail line that's not used anymore. But by and large, the Japan Society 5.0 is kind of diverted into two camps. One is the government camp, um, which is also... Uh, co-hosted by the Kadan Ren, Japan's business lobby, and they've largely just shifted into SDGs. So using Japan Society 5.0 for like SDGs, UN 2030 goals, decarbonization 2050, these very lofty ideals that make no sense to anybody except the small community of kind of cult members that they become who just repeat the same things to each other and somehow manage to siphon off billions and billions of dollars into their bridges to nowhere, essentially. Then the other camp are like the go-and-getters, the get-up-and-getters, the lift-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps people who see like an issue like, oh, we don't have enough servers, so we might need to create some server robots, and then we roll them out to restaurants that need them, or our agricultural community is suffering a major population decline. Uh, we're going to create these pickers that use AI cameras and they pick slowly, but they go all day and we'll get the um, fruit or the vegetables picked by the season's end. And then we'll be able to maintain our businesses and keep them growing, maybe export it for later. Bah, 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 bah. Those are the two ones. But then there's also the um, the the unreported, the underreported third camp, and this is the people that are trying to use brain computer interfaces with AI to um, uh, kind of uh, what is it called? Exploit the power of the brain uh, with the computer to fuse the two together. This is Japan Society, sorry, Japan Society 5.0. Japan scientists create world's first AI-generated images using brain activity. This is via Xinhua and UNB, Xinhua being a Chinese uh, government uh, news site. The technology, dubbed brain decoding, enables the visualization of perceptual contents based on brain activity. Japanese scientists, what, what, this was from end of December 2023. Again, this is not a breaking news podcast, but these are like, did you see this? <laughs> Maybe not. Is it worth knowing about? Maybe it is. Especially when you consider the amount of other random nonsense that's involved in the day-to-day -day of the uh, news landscape. 
Japanese scientists have succeeded in creating the world's first mental images of objects and landscapes from human brain activity by using AI. The team of scientists from National Institutes for Quantum Science and Technology and other organizations was able to produce rough images of a leopard with a recognizable mouth, ears, and spotted pattern, as well as objects like an airplane with red lights on its wings, Kyoto News reported Saturday. The technology, dubbed brain decoding, enables the visualization of perceptual contents based on brain activity and could be applied to the medical and welfare fields, the report said. During research, participants were shown 1,200 images of objects and landscapes, with the relationship between their brain signals and the images analyzed and quantified using functional magnetic resonance imagery, imaging, or FRMI. The same images were input into the generative AI to learn their correspondence with the brain activity. The technology could be used in the development of communication devices to gain an understanding of the brain mechanisms of hallucinations and dreams, according to the researchers. QST research, what's QST? Quantum science and technology. Quantum science and technology researcher Kate Majima said humans have used microscopes and other devices to view a world that was invisible to the naked eye, but they have not been able to step inside a person's mind, noting that this is the first time for humans to peer inside another person's mind. The findings were published recently in the online edition of the international scientific journal Neural Networks. This is interesting. I've been following brain-computer interfaces with AI for quite a while now. I mentioned on last week's podcast about Ben, Mr. Professor Ben He, uh, using drones uh, with brain-computer interfaces. No, sorry, EEG caps, electroencephalography caps, um, hooked up to a computer with Wi-Fi where users would visualize an image like a fist or a tree or a stool. The EEG cap would register the pattern that that would make in the person's mind, put it into the computer as code, and then transmit that code as an action to a drone. And so the operator would be able to, with a with a nose-mounted camera on the drone, control the drone with their mind via computer, via EEG cap. And so this is just another step on top of that, where if you have the, for example, a leopard and the... Uh, you visualize a leopard and the brain computer interface or the EEG cap sees that pattern in your mind over and over again, it can then regenerate that code into a leopard just as the same way that it would tell a drone to turn right, turn left, go up or go down. You just tell the computer what to do with that code. And it will, as long as the leopard is visualized the same way over and over and over again by the human, the pattern it creates from the brain will be similar enough so that a computer would be able to read it, you know, with a neural network to transmit it into a code or trans retransmit it into an image. Very interesting ideas here. Um, and that's today's Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0 A technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living 
and solve various challenges. Let's take a look at North Korea in Japan and the wider spectrum. There are basically two types of Koreans that were um, resettled or recategorized in Japan after World War II, the North Koreans and the South Koreans. Korea was a part of Japan. The Korean soldiers that fought in World War II were Japanese soldiers. But after Japan lost World War II, Korea was returned to Korea, and then all of the Koreans all over Japan lost their Japanese national status. Um, depending on where they were from in the North or the South, a lot of them post-World War II uh, remaining in Japan or within Japanese territory would choose to have a North Korean identity or a South Korean identity. Now, since then, you know, a long time ago now, a lot more Koreans have come over and they're not, they're very different types. They're, you know, they're workers, they're, they're restaurant workers, they're, they're in the telecoms industry, they're, they're business people, they're students, whatever. But when we go back to this idea of the divide between the North and the South, the North people, the North Korean types in Japan are commonly referred to as Chong Rong. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly and I don't care. But the Chong Rong um, have schools and university, not universities, schools and businesses and all, all sorts of networks in, 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 in all over Japan, like the main islands. And up until the mid-90s, there was a ship that went from Niigata into North Korea. And it was assumed that North Korea developed a lot of their GPS technology based on the digital cameras that were being sent as so, so-called gifts from uh, sympathizers or the Chongrong North Koreans uh, in, in Japan, they would put all these digital cameras and send them into the ship or to back to uh, North Korea. And then North Korea reverse engineered all the technology in those digital cameras to gain GPS technology for their missile systems and stuff like that. So this is like a complex issue and it goes back a long time. And there's still a lot of Chongrong activity within Japan. The only reason I bring this up is that if major conflict um, sprouts up with, in the Asia-Pacific region, or more specifically between Taiwan, if China and Russia are allied with North Korea and um, the United States and the Philippines and everybody else is expecting Japan to rush to their aid down in that area of the Southeast Pacific, well, if um, North Korea activates its military or c conducts military operations, it's going to suck back a lot of that Japanese support into a front, into a new front to, to maintain a focused front of like um, uh, NATO or NATO adjacent or American uh, allies into the Taiwan Strait. China would be able to focus attention onto the Spratly Island chains near the Philippines and then refocus a lot of attention into North Korea by using North Korea as an ally. And then South Korea and Japan would have a lot of their resources automatically focused into that area. But what a lot of people don't consider is that there's a population inside Japan that are considered to be North Koreans. And I'm not going to say that they're all going to be some sort of sleeper cell agent, but um, if, if the call from home, uh, if that phone starts ringing, who's going to pick up and who's going to start acting on behalf of these orders? 
I don't know. It's just something that we should all consider or even think about or acknowledge. So this comes to us from Wakayama compatriots spring gathering. Congratulations to the youth in their twenties. This is like a website, um, the four <laughs> North Koreans in Japan. And I used a translator um, to kind of go through it. And this kind of just shows a little bit of the mentality behind of the North Korean gatherings that go on in Japan. Um, the 2024 Wakayama Compatriots Spring Gathering, um, organized by the Wakayama Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Wakayama Prefecture Government, and uh, Chongchong Wakayama Prefecture Headquarters, took place on the 6th at a facility in Wakayama City. On this day, the event proceeded in three parts, a spring lecture, a celebration for compatriot youth in their 20s, and a congratulatory ceremony. About 100 participants, including Kim Sang-il, the chairman of the Wakayama Prefectural Headquarters of the Chongrong, um, and Yoon Jong-myung, chairman of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and Kang Yong-hee, the chairman of the Prefectural Government, and Kang Sang-sina, chairman of the Chongchong headquarters, as well as representatives from various organizations attended the gathering. Uh, so it's like, well, they're gathering and they're doing things. Um, during, I'm not going to go into the whole thing here, but they had like a dance troupe and they passionately congratulated the compatriot youth turning 20. Compatriot, it's like code word for communists, right? During the congratulatory event, participants renewed their determination to unite compatriots for the sake of the Wakayama Compatriot Society, schools, and the future of children. And um, the compatriots' festive mood unfolded. The chairman was moved to tears when... Um, the students sang love for the warm love for the homeland is warm and when all participants sang wakayama pride so it's obviously not like military but it's obviously sympathetic that's what i'm saying um and we also have uh just a different news article from NorthKoreaNews.org. I'm pretty sure this is a front site for some sort of intelligence operation. But it says North Korean drones pose major risk to South Korean airports, lawmaker says. Well, what if some of those Chongrong people get some of those air drones? Does that not apply to them? I don't know. Does it? Nobody's talking about this. And then the other one is North Korean propaganda poster depicts tanks crushing South Koreans. Um, and this is North Korea kind of, this is again from NorthKoreanews.org. And these pictures are fantastic. I may have mentioned it before, but North Korea will display a new propaganda poster in public depicting a tank crushing Americans and South Koreans to death and urging people to destroy them, according to state media on Sunday. The release of the poster comes amid a domestic campaign to increase anti-U.S. and Republic of Korea sentiment as leader Kim Jong-un steps up rhetoric about preparing for war and ditching a policy of pursuing peaceful unification with the South. So as North Korea gets um, entangled more and more with uh, Russia and China, they might use, China and Russia might use North Korea as a destabilization force. And a lot of people just think that affects the North Korean and South Korean border. Um, but 
what we don't realize is that there's between 30 and 50,000 so-called um, Chongrong people who identify as North Koreans living in Japan as well. Uh, are they going to be affected by this propaganda? Again, I don't know. I just know it's out there. I find it myself a little creepy to talk about. It's uncomfortable for me to bring up these issues. But um, if if you're wondering why Japan seems like gung-ho and then hesitant about participating in these uh, military affairs. Well, Japan has a long history in the region and the relationships with its neighbors are very complex and it might have to consider some very ugly truths before it barges ahead, even though there's military bases from the U.S. all over the Japanese archipelago and they would not stand at the, the, if, you know, if, if really push comes to shove and let's just say like, the North Koreans and Japan declared an all-out war. They they there wouldn't be much of them left after a short period of time. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but there is like, well, there's a lot of them here. And what happened in Afghanistan? The F-16s from the American coalitions didn't destroy the Taliban in Afghanistan, did they? So are these realities that we now have to walk around with in our heads as we consider the rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific? I would argue that they are. Now, I want to extend a sympathetic hand and mind to all these people involved and and say pray for peace and all that um but at the same time uh we need to consider the realities that face us and not stick our heads in the sand like a bunch of cowardly french people die for the war never but it moves die for the good for the good die for the war die for the war All right, and that's going to be the podcast for today. I didn't get to all of my notes, but that's okay. Uh, Thank you for joining us on this uh, issue, uh, episode 130. You found it. It's the Japan What Podcast coming at you from the Toshihichacho Studios of Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan, the armpit of Asia. Until next time, everybody, I bid thee, Ja Mata. Bigelow.com Donate Matthew